quick disclaimer, this episode discusses the sexual abuse of minors. Listener discretion is advised. Hudson, Wisconsin was shocked by a double homicide at a funeral home and rumors spread about who may have done it. It wouldn't be until another crime was reported that an unlikely suspect emerged. I'm Charlie and welcome to Crime Lines. Welcome to Crime Lines and to another episode. I have been so sick this week. I will never use the term just a cold ever again. And I'm not sure if you can hear some of that still in my voice. I'm feeling a lot better, but sometimes it takes a while for the rest of me to recover. But we're just going to tell ourselves I don't sound that bad and hope maybe I can find some editing software that removes stuffiness from a voice. Don't think it exists. But regardless, you are getting in this episode this week, and then I will be releasing a two-part Halloween collaboration with 30 other podcasts. We all told a 5 to 10 minute true crime or spooky story. My friend Shane at Foul Play Podcast put them all together into two parts, and I will be releasing both of those this week. And then next week on Monday for our regular Crime Lanes episode, it is going to be a Halloween episode crossover with the podcast Southern Gothic. I'm taking a historic Kansas City maybe ghost story that has some similarities actually to the more serious case I'm discussing today. And because I'm preparing both of these at the same time, It has made me very aware of something that Brandon, the host of Southern Gothic, and I discussed. Why don't we have ghost stories where the ghost is walking around with a cell phone or trying to get Wi-Fi connection? We have Civil War ghost stories by the bucketful, but we don't have nearly as many Gulf War or Afghanistan War ghosts. The main reason for this is because the historical element serves the ghost story. It adds a spookiness, a fuzziness, and even a romanticized backdrop. But also, it gives us some distance from the tragedy. The families impacted by whatever led to the haunting are long dead. It's easier to avoid hurting living people when no one directly impacted by the origin story is still alive. There are still some issues we need to be mindful of when we do tell and consume even historical ghost stories. Things like turning mass tragedies like slavery or the Holocaust into an oopy spoopy story can absolutely have a negative impact overall. However it is we tell the story of a tragedy, whether it is a historic ghost story, a serious modern true crime discussion, or even a true crime podcast that is lighthearted with jokes being cracked, we have to think about the impact and the chances of negatively impacting someone when you're discussing a modern true crime case is huge. I know I have had families of victims reach out to me about my coverage. I recently had a family member of a killer reach out to me. These are real people, and what we say and how we say it impacts them. So it seems like a very good time to cover this case, which I've wanted to cover for a while, to juxtapose the serious modern true crime with my ghost story that I'm going to tell next week that actually has some of the same elements. I'm not going to bring it up again or lecture on it any more than I just did, but just this is something to keep in the back of your mind should ethics and true crime content be something you think about. The case we're talking about today takes place in the town of Hudson, Wisconsin, which has the distinction of being the only city in Wisconsin I've ever been to. It's right on the Minnesota border, and I had driven over when I was up there once to have lunch with a friend. 
A major source for this episode was a case study done in 2008 by Leon J. Potels and is published by the Crossland Foundation. It is linked directly in the show notes, and it is also at the top of the full list of sources. Let's start with Dan O'Connell. He was born in February of 1962 in St. Paul, Minnesota, which is not far from Hudson. Dan's family was well-known and respected in Hudson, and Dan excelled at everything he did. While he was still in high school as a senior, he became a certified EMT, and he worked his way up until he was the director of Hudson Ambulance. He did this while also attending the University of Wisconsin River Falls and graduated with honors in 1992 with his degree in mortuary science. Dan worked very hard in the community, helping build up his family's business, the O'Connell Family Funeral Home, which had two locations in Wisconsin at the time. He was incredibly active in the Hudson community, just like his parents were. He volunteered and he fundraised for nearly every cause you can imagine. In 1998, he married Jenny Joe, and they had two children together. Dan was very active and present in his family life, just like with the community, and he never missed a single event for his children. The O'Connell Family Funeral Home employed apprentices and interns who were finishing their degrees in mortuary sciences. In late 2001 or early 2002, they hired James Ellison, who had previously worked as an apprentice with a different funeral home. James was a hard worker. In addition to being in school full-time and working his internship, he also worked part-time at Cellular One. His family said he was very caring, which is what drew him into mortuary work. He wanted to be that person who handled arrangements for families at the worst point in their life. He wanted to take that burden off of them. James was very suited for this work because in addition to being a kind person, he was also organized, confident, and ready and willing to take on whatever task was put in front of him. In 2002, when he was working at O'Connell, he was just a semester away from graduating from the University of Minnesota. On Tuesday, February 5th, 2002, 39-year-old Dan O'Connell and 22-year-old James Ellison were at the O'Connell Funeral Home in Hudson working. It was just the two of them in the building. Around 1.40 p.m., the county coroner showed up at the funeral home to do some paperwork, and he walked back to Dan's office and right into a crime scene. He saw Dan sitting behind his desk, slumped over, having been shot in the head. Closer to the door to the office was James. He was also dead, having fallen over a chair. He had been shot from behind, and both had been shot with the same 9mm gun. The county coroner fled the building, not sure if the killer was still inside, and called authorities. This crime obviously shocked the town. It would shock any town to have a double homicide at a place of business. Now, Hudson itself isn't without its crime, but if you Google Hudson, Wisconsin and murder together, you will get this story and maybe two others, both of which were solved without much delay because the killer was known to the victim. In this case, it wouldn't be so easy. Through interviews generated by canvassing the area, the police did get a description of a white man with a light t-shirt and a baseball cap walking into the funeral home that day. They made a composite sketch, but no one seemed to recognize him. As far as trying to figure out who did this by trying to figure out the motive, they couldn't find one. Dan didn't have any enemies. He had no illegal dealings or shady business practices. 
He didn't have some rival funeral home that he had a beef with. He was a pillar of the community and a family man. So the authorities considered if James could have been the target. He was fairly new to the job, but in checking his background, it was as squeaky clean as Dan's. As far as victimology went, both of them lived low-risk lifestyles. The closest they got to a motive early on was a letter found in the trash at O'Connell's funeral home. It promised vengeance on any funeral home that used embalming fluid when preparing bodies for burial. O'Connell's did use it, so they got a letter. Whoever opened this note just tossed it, probably not thinking much about it at the time. But the police traced it to a religious group called Rest of Jesus Ministry, which has been considered a cult. They were located about an hour and a half east of Hudson. The leader, Catherine Padilla, denied any involvement. An investigation into the group did not yield any evidence that they were involved with murder, though they did charge Padilla with stalking and disorderly conduct for sending out her vaguely threatening letters. The charges would later be dropped. But the embalming fluid angle was something the police looked at for another reason. They considered, what if this was an attempted robbery of something at the funeral home? But they didn't really have anything valuable on site. But the police did look at the drug angle. Obviously, a funeral home's not going to have anything like narcotics, since, you know, their clients are long past needing those. However, they do have embalming fluid, and sometimes cigarettes or joints can be dipped in this fluid to get a high that is described as being not unlike PCP. These fluid-dipped cigarettes or joints are called fry on the streets, according to the Department of Justice. Yes, I go to the Department of Justice for my education about what happens on the streets because we know I'm not on the streets. I'm at home, in bed, probably watching reality TV. So with this embalming fluid being used in the drug trade, according to the Department of Justice, it seemed possible to the police at first that maybe this was drug-connected, but that fell apart pretty quickly. For one thing, anyone can buy embalming fluid. It's not something you need a license for or even a business address. And for another thing, it's really cheap. It's cheaper than the cigarettes people dip into it, so there's not really a need to steal it. So the possible robbery angle fell apart pretty quickly. It seemed much more likely, looking at the crime scene and the evidence they had, that someone came into the office and spoke with Dan while he was still sitting at his desk. The killer and Dan probably argued about something, and Dan was shot. Maybe James was in the room already, sitting in the chair, and he got up to run for help when the killer then shot him. Maybe he was in a different room and ran in when he heard the gunshots to see what was going on. He was then killed because he was a witness. However it played out, it seemed most likely that Dan was shot first, and if he was shot first, he was most likely the target. One rumor that went around town was that Dan had caught someone stealing cash from a fundraiser, and the person killed him to shut him up about it. The fundraiser was a spaghetti dinner that the O'Connell family had coordinated months before to raise funds in the aftermath of 9-11. But when investigators took a look at the accounting from that event, it didn't look like any money was missing. And that wasn't the only rumor going around town. Another one, a bit more sordid than robbery, was that Dan and James walked in on someone who had broken into the funeral home to commit acts of necrophilia. They were then killed by that person because they were witnesses. That obviously didn't fit with the evidence the police had from the crime scene. 
Dan certainly wouldn't have been doing paperwork behind his desk had he just caught someone defiling a corpse. But the information on where the bodies were found and how they were killed was not released to the public. When we don't have a lot of information made public, we end up with speculation that tries to fill in those blanks. And that's exactly what happened here. The investigation was continuing, as was the rumor mill, when the funerals for both men were held. James, a member of the First Lutheran Church in Barron, Wisconsin, had his services out there in his hometown, and his funeral was presided over by Reverend Bruce Byer. And with a surname like O'Connell, I'm sure it's no surprise that Dan was a member at St. Patrick Parish in Hudson, and that is where his funeral mass was held. The services were coordinated by his family, who took on that task for so many other families, but they wanted to do it for Dan as a special tribute. Father Ryan Erickson was the one who oversaw the mass. After the funerals, the investigation continued, but slowed as time passed. They ran down and ruled out every lead. Though a lot of tips came in and a lot of interviews were held, everything ended in a dead end. Even the motive remained a huge question mark. What ended up really blowing up the funeral home murder case was an investigation into a different sort of crime that happened two years later. The investigation happened two years later, but it was actually just one year after the murders that the initial complaint was made. A college student in Bismarck, North Dakota, went to the local police. He was from Hudson and had been a member of St. Patrick's Church the same parish Dan O'Connell attended. This young man accused one of the priests, Father Ryan Erickson, of sexual abuse. As he was both a minor at the time and a survivor of sexual assault who has not chosen to be publicly named, I will call him Paul. Paul told the police that the abuse happened in 2000 and 2001 starting when he was around 16 years old. He was part of a youth group that Father Ryan had formed, and a small group of the teen boys had been singled out for extra time together. They would go to the rectory on the weekends and hang out. Paul said they would watch movies and drink alcohol, alcohol provided to them by Father Ryan. The claims of the drinking and partying would be backed up by others. Paul said there were times he would drink so much that he would pass out in Father Ryan's bed, and Father Ryan would get into the bed with him. But even with the excessive alcohol use, Paul could clearly remember at least 10 instances of Father Ryan touching him in a sexual manner. As far as he knew and could remember, it was always touching and not penetrative. There was at least one time when he showered at the rectory and he said Father Ryan watched him. Paul didn't fully realize what had happened to him until he took a psychology class at the university and he learned about grooming. He could see that Father Ryan, who was a 28-year-old man in an authority position, had befriended him as a 16-year-old and then plied him with alcohol, and he saw this for what it was. He told the police he was coming forward because he hoped he could stop it from happening to someone else. Because the abuse happened in Hudson while Paul was attending St. Patrick's Parish, the report from Bismarck was sent to the police in Hudson. But there was a miscommunication, a loss of information along the way. Paul's report and complaint 
was sent to Hudson as a supplying alcohol to a minor charge. The abuse, for whatever reason, was not flagged. So the Hudson police didn't find it to be a terribly pressing matter and didn't follow up on it immediately. The report sat for about a year. When the Hudson police spoke with Paul in 2004, they found out that it was a lot more than just giving kids a couple of beers. In interviewing members of the youth group, the police did not find another victim of sexual abuse, but they did find someone who seemed to have been the next target. He said he had never been touched, but he had been given more alcohol and soon enough more attention. He believed Father Ryan was grooming him during that time. And he was also able to back up a lot of what Paul said, including saying that he saw changes in Paul's demeanor and attitude during the time the abuse was happening. By the time this investigation was launched, Father Ryan had already left St. Patrick's, so the Hudson police were able to investigate without him being aware or tipped off that it was happening. They talked to several parishioners, and though Father Ryan seemed popular while he was at the church, a lot of people had a lot of things to say about him after he left. Though Father Ryan also had a lot of supporters, it turned out he was a rather divisive figure in the church. So let's go ahead and get into Father Ryan Erickson and his full background. Ryan Erickson grew up in Wisconsin, but clear on the other side of the state from Hudson, closer to Milwaukee. When he was 17, his parents moved after his father was transferred for work. So that he could finish out high school with his friends, he moved in with Father Michael Morin, who was a priest. During this time, Ryan Erickson's religious beliefs went from pretty typically religious teen to much more devout and a lot less flexible. He began seeing things in black and white terms, and he would get aggressive with people who disagreed with him. In the summer of 1992, at the age of 19, Ryan was in the process of joining the seminary. In July, he had to undergo a psychological screening process. During this, he did confess to having sexually touched a younger relative when he was still a child himself, and then said when he was 17, he had sexual contact with a 14-year-old. Though both of these were included and noted in his psychological report, the evaluation ended up concluding that Ryan was psychologically stable, healthy, and problem-free. It said he would make an outstanding priest. And with that, he enrolled at Immaculate Heart of Mary Seminary, which is part of St. Mary's University of Minnesota. A year and a half later, in March 1994, the district attorney's office in northern Wisconsin called the vocation director of the Diocese of Superior. They said they were investigating accusations made against Ryan Erickson that came from an incident that occurred in the summer of 1992. That summer, Ryan was applying for the seminary and staying at a campground with his family. A young man later came forward and accused Ryan of fondling him that summer when he was 14 and Ryan was 19. Ryan had previously admitted to sexual contact with a 14-year-old, but he said that he himself was only 17 at the time. So is this the same incident and he just dialed back two years to make himself look less culpable, or is this a separate incident? According to Ryan, this didn't happen at all, and he denied the allegation when he was confronted about it. But the rector of the seminary immediately suspended him pending the results of the investigation. He also told Ryan to go get counseling and that he would need more testing 
from a clinical psychologist. In the end, on the legal side, the DA and the investigator on the case decided that the allegations were uncorroborated. The investigator believed that the younger teen was unreliable, and the logic he used to get to that conclusion is problematic. The reason he was found unreliable was because he was depressed and in therapy. And one of the things he was in therapy over was questioning his own sexual orientation and struggling with it due to homophobia. So because this young man was struggling with the aftermath of what allegedly happened to him, he was deemed unreliable. It was concluded by the DA that Ryan Erickson was not totally innocent of impropriety, but that was not enough to charge him. It was said outright by the investigator on the case that Father Ryan was given the benefit of the doubt because he was training to be a priest. And this right here is how people in authority get away with abuse. They get the benefit of the doubt due to their position in society. And their victims get told that because they are depressed because of what happened, they're emotionally unstable, and that makes them an unreliable witness. So after the DA decided not to pursue charges, Ryan was allowed to continue in the seminary. After graduating from St. Mary's, Ryan went on to study at St. Paul Seminary in St. Paul, Minnesota in 1996. Just like he had to do to get into seminary the first time, Ryan had to undergo another psych exam. The allegations of improper sexual behavior came up, but it was found he was not predatory or exploitative. It said, quote, the alleged sexual misconduct behaviors he described to us appeared to be benign, end quote. Towards the end of his studies at St. Paul in the late 1990s, Ryan became even more conservative than before. It was enough that other students started calling him Monsignor after he started wearing a cassock most of the time. But being conservative in a church setting or in a seminary isn't the most shocking thing ever. The thing that did become an issue was Ryan's drinking. He drank to excess regularly, and he was confronted about it while he was at St. Paul's. He had to undergo another psychological assessment, and he promised to get sober and attend Alcoholics Anonymous. But sobriety would go on to be a struggle for him through his 20s. In 1999, Ryan did his internship, and then in June 2000, he was ordained and officially became Father Ryan Erickson. But this was not without some reservations on the part of one of Father Ryan's instructors. He wrote, quote, I have serious reservations about his strength of character. I see him as one who deflects responsibility for his actions, loose with his tongue, and somewhat manipulative, end quote. But this was just one dissenting voice, so his ordination went ahead. Soon after this, Father Ryan was assigned to St. Patrick's Church in Hudson, who was not told about the 1992 allegation. The members of the parish became torn over this new priest. Some liked that he was very traditional. This appealed to those who liked the strict guidance because rigid was a good way to describe Father Ryan. There was really no room for levity in his sermons, and sometimes he would get so emotional during Mass that he would cry. Some liked that. They liked that he didn't water down the doctrines of the church, and he spoke openly about being anti-contraception and anti-abortion and anti-pornography. A couple of parishioners who supported Father Ryan pretty much said that the people who didn't like him didn't like him because he spoke the truth. It was their own guilt over their own sins that made them uncomfortable. 
But those who didn't like or didn't care for Father Ryan would definitely say it was Father Ryan himself who made them uncomfortable. Like when he would hold the host over his head and cry, not just for a couple of seconds, but a full minute or more while everyone just watched. They say it wasn't that they didn't want to hear the doctrines of the church. They knew that was literally his job. But they thought Father Ryan focused on sin and condemnation to the exclusion of talking about more positive aspects of the church's teachings, like forgiveness and betterment and love. Father Ryan's fire and brimstone style also extended into emails he would send parishioners about issues he saw within the parish. And some took exception to the words and the phrasing he chose to use. To give you one example, he wanted to send an email to everyone about modest dress during Mass. What he wrote was that Sunday Mass was not safe because of the immodest dress of some who attended. The email read, and I am quoting this, Their immodest dress says to all present, I'm easy. Please go home and masturbate to my beautiful body. The sad thing is that some do. End quote. Father Ryan had a fixation on various topics, like abortion and masturbation. He spoke in very harsh terms about what a severe sin masturbation was, and he worked it into a sex education class that he helped teach the older grades at St. Patrick's School, which went preschool through grade eight. Father Ryan's presence at the school was another issue people were divided on. The more conservative and traditional Catholic parents didn't have an issue with Father Ryan and hoped he'd be more involved at the school. They chose Catholic education for a reason. But Father Ryan and the principal of the school clashed. At first, she liked having the parish priest interested in the school, invested in it, and spending time there. But then one time, she overheard him teaching a group of soon-to-be first communicants, and his teachings were out of date. In 1965, before Father Ryan was even born, the Catholic Church concluded a multi-year council to update the church to be more relevant to modern life while still remaining in line with Catholic doctrines and beliefs. Not all of the changes, though, were welcomed by everyone, and you'll still hear the phrase pre-Vatican II to describe the older procedures and practices that some prefer. Father Ryan, while he was educated in the post-Vatican II church, was much more in line with the pre-Vatican II church, and that was causing some issues in the parish and in the school. Adding to this, there had already been some conflict with the principal and some of the more traditional parents, as she encouraged more modern teaching methods and educational philosophy than the school was used to. In early 2002, right before the funeral home murders, she resigned due to the split with the parents. And that was a split not caused by Father Ryan, but also not helped by him. Over the next year, Father Ryan's behaviors became too much for even some of his supporters. Some still thought his emotional outbursts were because of his passion for the Word of God, but others started seeing this as a sign of actual instability. One time, he was found in the sacristy sobbing and wailing. When asked what was wrong, he said he was upset about abortion. Shortly after this, in September 2003, Father Ryan was transferred away from St. Patrick's. While it was officially considered a routine relocation, it did come very soon after a few parishioners had complained to the diocese about his weeping and wailing. 
So just a side note here, prior to Father Ryan leaving St. Patrick's, the head priest there got very, very sick. The exact cause was unclear even to doctors, and attempts at treatment weren't working. And then Father Ryan was moved to a new church, and the head priest made a full recovery. There were rumors, noted by Bruce Rubenstein of the Minneapolis City Pages, that Father Ryan had been gunning for the top spot at St. Patrick's, making some question the timing on the illness and the recovery of the head priest. Nothing, from what I can tell, has been established one way or the other on this point. Father Ryan was sent from St. Patrick's to Our Lady of Sorrows in Ladysmith, Wisconsin. He was there for less than a year when he was transferred again. This time, it was pretty clearly because of a complaint. The bishop in Ladysmith asked that Father Ryan be moved due to his excessive drinking. He had been caught drinking and partying at a pretty well-known teen hangout spot, and when asked about it, he said he was not a priest for that weekend. Obviously, this was not okay, and he was moved. This time, he ended up at St. Mary's in Hurley, Wisconsin in August 2004, when the police in Hudson were in the middle of their investigation into the allegations of sexual abuse. As the police were talking to the people in Hudson, the parishioners who knew him, they started hearing some odd stories about Father Ryan. It wasn't all about suspicions of abuse or crying at church, but other things like how he kept a number of guns in the parsonage and regularly carried a handgun, even under his cassock during Mass. One teen from the youth group told the police that Father Ryan would point his gun out of his office window at parishioners he didn't like and pretend to pull the trigger. In November 2004, the investigators in Hudson went out to Hurley to question Father Ryan about the abuse accusations, but they approached him by telling him that they wanted to talk about the funeral home murders that had occurred in Hudson, since he was the priest there and knew Dan O'Connell. Maybe he had some information. Father Ryan agreed to talk. So they sit down with him, and he's telling them how he's heard rumors like the O'Connell family had ties to the mafia and that that had been the motive for these murders. They asked him if he had heard anything more specific, and Father Ryan said he had. He then proceeded to describe the crime scene with Dan slumped over his desk and James near the door. He even said that they were each shot once. Now, remember back how I said earlier that people filled in the blanks on what happened with speculation because the police held back so much. These details were part of that holdback information, yet Father Ryan knew them. In all of the interviews the police had done, no one else mentioned any factual details about the crime scene like this. So they knew there hadn't been a leak. It wasn't going around town. By telling the police these details about the murder, Father Ryan might as well have grabbed their pen and written his name at the top of the suspect list. And this is before they even asked him anything about the abuse accusations, which is what they were actually investigating him for. So after this interview, the police continued working the case and began pulling more background on Father Ryan. They decided to interview him again, this time at the police station in December 2004, just about four weeks after the first interview. This time, they confronted him on everything. The accusations of sexual abuse and the double homicide. Father Ryan denied the abuse, but did admit that he provided alcohol to a young man, but said the man was 18 at the time, and he was pretty sure the boy's mother was aware of it. He said that this was normal when he was growing up to allow older teens some alcohol, but he did realize he should not have done it. As for the accusation that he watched the young man shower, he did say that one time 
This young man drank too much and was sick all over himself. So he washed his clothes and put him in the shower, but it wasn't sexual and he didn't watch him. As the conversation went on, the investigators then brought up what Father Ryan had said he heard about the murders. And without too much prodding, he repeated what he said before about the crime scene, information he should not have known. So the investigators confronted him on this, and he doubled down. He said he definitely heard it from somewhere. Maybe it was on the news, or maybe it was someone else saying it and he overheard it. At one point, he said he heard it from a certain police officer, an officer who denied ever saying anything to Father Ryan about the crime scene. In an episode of the show Killer Clergy that covered this case, Lewis Schlesinger, a criminal psychologist, said that this happens with unsophisticated criminals. They talk too much. They think they're smarter than they are, yet they aren't smart enough to just stop talking. Father Ryan denied being involved in the murders, just like he denied the abuse. Asked for his alibi, Father Ryan said he was at St. Patrick's School that day. He then told the police that if he did something heinous like that, he would confess because he would not be able to live with himself. He agreed to take a polygraph, and they scheduled it for December 14th. With not enough evidence at this point and an investigation underway, they let Father Ryan leave the station after the interview. On December 13th, Father Ryan called and canceled on the polygraph test on the advice of his attorney. According to what friends said later, he also called some of them to see if anyone would be able to help him with an alibi for the day of the murders. He told the police he was at the school, so he shouldn't need an alibi from another friend, but he was building a defense. On December 16th, the police executed a search warrant at the rectory at St. Mary's where Father Ryan lived. This was limited to his personal living quarters where they found 16 guns, six of which were handguns. It doesn't appear that any of these were conclusively linked to the murders. They also seized Father Ryan's computer. On it, pertaining to the murder, they found an email that indicated that he and Dan O'Connell had an argument about something, and it was dated the day before the murder. They also saw on there a last will and testament. When it was analyzed, they realized that he had first written it the day after talking to the police the first time, and he had modified it the day after the second interview. This also aligned with something he told someone else at church, that he wouldn't be going to prison no matter what. And Father Ryan had brought up suicide in his second interview enough times that the investigators had asked him if he was okay or if he needed to talk to someone, even though he denied currently being suicidal. He said he was okay. Now, they were not so sure. So with his consent, the police confiscated all of Father Ryan's guns for fear he would take his own life. Which is exactly what happened three days later. The police were called to the rectory where Father Ryan was found hanging. He did leave behind notes to different people. And while responsible reporting standards instruct us not to share the contents of suicide notes, I think it's only fair to Father Ryan's defense, since he is no longer here, to say that he did consistently deny involvement in the murders. But the death of Father Ryan was not the end of this investigation. The police were still trying to get to the bottom of what happened. They did find some resistance after his death. Many of his supporters just would not speak to the police, and they did not believe the accusations against him. They were also in deep grief for someone they cared about. At least one person questioned the ruling of suicide. Though another said she believed it was a suicide, but not as a sign of guilt. Father Ryan was just that heartbroken and hopeless over being accused of hurting kids. But that was before they learned what was found on his computer. 
when the computer was fully analyzed, they found hidden in a folder called Mass Prayers more than 40 pornographic images, most of men, which would have been between Father Ryan and God. But some of the images were child sexual abuse material of teenage boys and at least one of a prepubescent boy. Though there is no indication that Father Ryan created these images, the viewing of child sexual abuse materials continues to hurt and victimize these children. It seems the accusation of hurting children was not what Father Ryan was afraid of, but rather the exposure of it, knowing the police had his computer. At the conclusion of the police investigation, the state of Wisconsin held what is called a John Doe hearing. These hearings generally start with a district attorney filing a complaint alleging criminal conduct. A judge can then subpoena and examine witnesses. It is similar to the investigatory grand juries we've talked about that happen in Connecticut, except these aren't always held in secret. They're actually generally open to the public unless it's closed for a specific reason. These hearings can also be requested by citizens, and some of the reporting indicates that Dan O'Connell's family had asked for it. Obviously, any charges recommended through this against Father Ryan Erickson wouldn't go anywhere since he was dead. But it was important to the families of the victims to have the evidence heard and evaluated by a judge. Much of what we've already talked about was entered into evidence, and Paul, the victim, had also testified, as did the other young man who had been groomed by Father Ryan. But there was also more testimony, things the police had not heard until after Father Ryan's death. One was a woman who came forward named Mary, who saw Dan O'Connell on the morning he was killed. Dan had left a meeting around 9.45, saying that he had another meeting in Hudson. He stopped at a Walmart where he bumped into Mary, and the two sat down to have coffee together. As they talked, Dan asked Mary if she had ever seen or heard about Father Ryan being inappropriate with any kids. She said no. Mary did testify that she told Dan that she noticed Father Ryan almost completely ignored the girls and favored the boys. Dan told her he planned to meet with Father Ryan later that day. Mary, who was a bus driver, was in her bus around 11.15 a.m. near St. Patrick's School and saw Father Ryan leave the rectory in street clothes, which she hadn't expected. He rarely, if ever, went out in casual dress. She said he drove away from the school, whereas his alibi for this time was that he was at the school. Mary hadn't come forward with this to authorities until after Father Ryan's death when she learned he was a suspect in the murders. At the time this happened, she did mention it to the bus dispatcher. But after Dan was killed, she assumed it was kind of besides the point. He must have gotten killed before his scheduled meeting with Father Ryan. She hadn't connected that the meeting with the priest would have anything to do with Dan's murder. Once again, someone in a position of authority is truly being given the benefit of the doubt. Mary took a polygraph about the story and passed. Another parishioner named Mike testified that Father Ryan had confided in him after the murders that he had an argument with Dan O'Connell the night before the murder. Father Ryan then said something about the demon or the devil being gone. Mike, too, passed a polygraph. And yet another witness was a deacon at St. Mary's named Russell. He had found Father Ryan to be troubled, possibly unstable, but he still liked him. They talked the day after Father Ryan's first interview with the police, and he said Father Ryan was upset about being questioned. 
At one point, he looked out the window and said, quote, I done it and I'm gonna get caught, end quote. Again, Father Ryan was given the benefit of the doubt. Russell hoped he wasn't telling the truth and was going to watch the investigation unfold. Though he did not yet come to the police before Father Ryan's death, he did confide in two people about this conversation who were able to back it up. On October 3, 2005, the judge rendered his decision in this John Doe hearing, and he ruled that there was probable cause to believe Father Ryan had committed the murders and that he had abused at least one minor boy. And these crimes were linked. Dan O'Connell was murdered because he had somehow learned about the abuse, and he confronted Father Ryan over it. His next step was likely to go to the authorities. And as for the victim who we've called Paul in this episode, he came forward to protect the next kid in his position, and what he did was help solve a murder. Though the case was circumstantial, the judge called it one of the strongest circumstantial cases he had ever seen. This was not a conviction, but it allowed the families to have some sort of answer and resolution to the legal side. And that's not something we often see in cases where the suspect dies before a trial. And in this case, it would have to be enough. Thank you for listening. You can find Crimelines on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and occasionally TikTok. Crimelines is on Patreon, where I offer early and ad-free episodes as well as bonus content. Visit patreon.com slash crimelines. If you want to buy me a coffee, the official drink of Crimelines, you can give a one-time donation at basementfortproductions.com slash support. And if you need a palate cleanser after listening to heavier true crime shows, check out Rusty Hinges, an allegedly funny history, mystery, and true crime show that I co-created and write for.